Hey everyone, and welcome to this special soapbox edition of the Risky Business Podcast. My name's Patrick Gray. As regular listeners know, these soapbox editions are wholly sponsored, and that means everyone you hear in one of these episodes paid to be here. And today's guest is an industry legend, Metasploit creator HD Moore. And he's here to tell us more about what's happening with his latest creation, Rumble Network Discovery. If you're not familiar with Rumble, uh, you really should be because it's uh, it's really awesome. Uh, it's a network scanner that you just set loose and it will go and find all of the devices on your network. Uh, and it has a freaky ability to see around corners. It can find devices it can't even connect to uh, directly because HD and his team have done some really crazy work on pulling device information out of obscure uh, protocol queries and weird sources and, and things like that. So yeah, it's, it's genuinely impressive stuff. Uh, and it just takes a few minutes to set up a scan with Rumble. So it is infinitely easier than trying to do the same thing with passive network discovery. Uh, you know, on the network or or by pulling d- data ad hoc from other solutions. Uh, but uh, Rumble isn't just a network scanner anymore for on-prem stuff. They've been doing uh, basic cloud inventory since the early days, but as you're about to hear, it's an area they've really been putting a lot of work into lately. And uh, they've made some really impressive gains there. Uh, another big thing they've worked on is ICS and OT fingerprinting techniques that won't actually cause uh, devices to command things to explode. Uh, so that's nice. You're also going to hear about how HD and his team uh, worked on, yeah, doing that sort of ICS device fingerprinting in a safe uh, way that's still comprehensive. Uh, anyway, here is the man, the legend, HD Moore, in an interview with me, and he starts off here talking about how Rumble has changed since the early versions. Enjoy. Sure. I mean, so we started off with a network scanner. We added cloud support to integrate with the various cloud providers. Uh, since then, we've been doubling down on things like EDR discovery and identifying um, all of your off-network assets. So connecting to MDMs, connecting to EDRs, identifying which of your assets are running CrowdStrike or Sentinel One. Most recently, we added the ability to pull your software inventory off your Sentinel One devices too, and combine that with the scanned software inventory. So we could say, like, not only how many web servers do you have at this particular make and model, but which machines have Photoshop installed if they happen to have Sentinel One installed too. Um, so we're really trying to uh, provide that comprehensive view of every single thing on your network and off your network that belongs to your organization. So this is a Sentinel One integration, and they're doing the sort of inventory per endpoint, and then you can ingest that as well. Yep, that's right. So our goal is to normalize all that, bring it all to one place, make it searchable, sortable. You can create alerts based on it. So um, one of the nice things about the platform is that if you connect um, you know, your CrowdStrike EDR, your Sentinel One EDR to it, you can now do all kinds of fun alerts and grouping and searching and sorting directly from Rumble's interface for it without having to go back to the EDR console and you know fiddle with the rule system for it. So we have a lot of customers who actually prefer using the Rumble viewpoint into their cloud providers or into their EDR systems just because they like the syntax and the capabilities better than the native uh, UIs. This is interesting. So, so what sort of stuff are they doing that they would be doing normally in their like EDR console? Um, so good examples would be like with CrowdStrike, you get all kinds of great information about the assets, but trying to search that stuff is not particularly fun. So if you're trying to figure out, okay, which machines have outdated BIOS, like which of my laptop fleets out there have an outdated UEFI BIOS? It's kind of a fiddly thing. It's annoying to get, but we make it really, really simple in Rumble. You can do a grouped query based on the, uh, the BIOS version field within the CrowdStrike attribute and get all of them at once in one big report. So it's those little things like trying to take something that's kind of a a deep chunk of data that's really difficult to extract by itself and make it super easy to export, search, you know, link to somebody else, create alerts for, things like that. 
a big thing that Rumble does is it takes this data and gives it to like CMDB solutions, right? So that's one of the sort of selling points was, you know, we can um, uh, populate a CMDB with this information that we go out and obtain in a very sort of light touch way. But it sounds like really what you're offering on the console side these days is probably where people are going to want to touch that data anyway. So are you seeing people sort of saying, why are we using a CMDB now? Or is that more like a, a, a sort of compliance issue and they have to? Uh, we get a bit of both. I mean, a lot of folks would say, hey, we'd really love to use Rumble Azure CMDB or Azure SIM, but you guys don't do these things yet. And like, that's true. Um, at the same time, we can complement all of the workflows that you normally use your SIM or your CMDB for, whether it's trying to figure out how many of a certain asset you have or what the, the groupings are, where they are, or in the SIM use case, like a lot of folks use this to bring data into Splunk and search on Splunk, but some of the searches are just much easier to do on the Rumble side. So if you're trying to get like a grouped breakdown of how many of X and Y you have or the version numbers of a certain piece of software, it's easier to do that from the Rumble UI or from the Rumble reports than it is to do that from uh, querying your Splunk data. Um, so we definitely see some overlap there. We're happy to support, you know, out of product use cases through APIs, however we can. But at the same time, we want to provide as much of that functionality in the product as, as makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, you're talking about being able to pull a lot of this info out of, uh, you know, EDR solutions. One thing that I'm curious about, because, you know, I, I talk obviously to a lot of vendors um, uh, in InfoSec and, one one conversation that came up for us recently for for me and a, a different vendor was, well, maybe we want to have a tick box option in the configuration to make this software discoverable to Rumble because things have changed, right? Like you remember 20 years ago, it was all about making your software as stealthy as possible so that attackers couldn't enumerate like what software was on the box uh, and then and then find out ways to attack it. It feels like these days... You know, I'd imagine there's a lot of CISOs out there who want to make their stuff as discoverable as possible so that tools like Rumble can find it and they have a much clearer picture of what's happening in their network. Do you think that shift is on? Do you think now that people want the software that they're using to be discoverable or is it still a bit of a mix? You definitely see a trend. One of the main drivers for it is that folks don't want to do authenticated scanning to identify their assets. And so a good example of that was Qualys. You know, they do vulnerability management, but they also have a Qualys correlation agent, which is a separate little Go-based web server that runs on all of your assets, listens to the network, and all it does is return a unique identifier. So they've gone to the point that if you want to uniquely correlate an asset to the network with your vuln scan, they require you to install this host agent, which is exposed to the network, which is, you know, completely topsy-turvy to the world 20 years ago or even 10 years ago when folks said we yeah. don't want to expose services to the network. We also see a lot of customers that are very security savvy exposing things like the check MK agent, which is basically a read-only dump of a bunch of system variables and parameters. Um, so there's definitely a trend to have more stuff exposed to the network just so you can avoid having to SSH in each node or otherwise do authenticated access to each node to pull that information. Yeah, so how are vendors... Yeah, okay, so a more open question. What's the best way if you're a software developer out there and you want to be discoverable to Rumble? What is the best way to do that? Is it going to be spinning up a service or is it going to be like some sort of RPC voodoo or like, you know, how, how does this work? Um, generally, if you have a web, if you have some kind of network service, just put your version number on it. I mean, a lot of folks try to hide their version and to try to obscure what information they share with the network, but that only does you a disservice in the long run. It makes it hard for your customers to find outdated instances, to apply the latest updates to it, for other vendors to keep track of where your stuff is deployed. So I'd recommend that anybody who's shipping a service as the software or any software that has a network service exposed to it, actually put your version number into it, make it accessible. Um, we're seeing that with everything from, you know, the HP ILO backends all the way through things like CheckMK and other kind of system agents that are unauthenticated by default. And that's an actually great trade-off for uh, making them manageable. 
what what about for companies that are selling software that don't that doesn't expose an a you know a, a, a expose a port to the network, right? So like, what what what's the way to do it then? Um, for a lot of folks who are you know running like desktop software, things that aren't directly talked to the network or only do outbound communication, um, you can pull that information out of like your EDRs or you can pull it out of like uh, MDM or another backend where it's enumerating the software per box. But you have to do that through an API integration to that vendor. And every vendor out there provides a slightly different view of that information with different levels of normalization for it. Uh, so we fight with that quite a lot on our side. Like, how do we normalize software informa- inventory information from multiple sources and represent it the same way, whether it's CPE 2.3 or something else? Okay, so now we get to the part of the conversation of like who's using this, right? And I have a little bit of insight here because, uh, you know, full disclosure, I'm a Rumble advisor, right? So I have I have some insight into who some of your customers are. And, you know, you've done some absolutely gargantuan uh, 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 deals lately. Um, why, why don't you talk talk to us about what those customers are you know, using Rumble for at this massive scale? Sure. Um, one of my favorite customers, um, and they're all my favorites, right? But one of them that I, I think is really interesting is that uh, the K-12 school districts, public school districts for an entire U.S. state, uh, and not a small one, are using Rumble across all 100-plus school districts. It's, it's amazing. And they're using kind of our multi-org functionality or multi-tenancy, being able to isolate each org to each group of admins that needs to see it. Um, and just the scale of this thing is massive. The fact that it's every single school in the state, every piece of equipment on every single school network at once. Um, so that's and that's really... all, And that's all populating upwards to one central thing. Yeah, absolutely. And they're doing some cool research projects with it. They're not only pulling it all back to a single console, but then they're exporting that data back out so they can actually have their research team go through and drill into it and do fun stuff and pull, pull reports out of it. So it's really cool supporting it both from a data gathering and kind of operation side, but also from a supporting like their, their own research efforts. So what, what sort of research are we talking about? Like what does the, you know, a, a security researcher at a, at a K-12, uh, you know, for K-12 schools in, an, in, an, in a state in the United States, you know, you give them this data, what are they looking for? Oh, lots of things. I mean, like what cameras are on the network? What other kind of oddball devices? How old are our printers? How outdated are our firmwares? Um, how many machines are on the network that have been end of life for the last 10 years? Like, do we still have Windows XP anywhere out there? Do we have any kind of oddball services that we don't expect? Um, are public SNP communities still in use across our infrastructure? Um, all the stuff that would, you know, lead to some kids having a, some good old times at the network that you want to get ahead of before they find it. Now, obviously, K-12 schools aren't the only... Uh you know, a uh, big customer you got. Can you can you walk us through some other use cases? Because I know sure. there's plenty now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so we have customers in almost every single segment. Um, the more complicated, the messier, the kind of less homogenous your network is, the better Rumble is for you because we cover such a wide gamut of fingerprints. We cover everything from your, your OT and ICS stuff all the way to your consumer electronics, uh, your, you know, little Wemo plugs, anything else between. Um, so we've got some, uh, some really awesome customers. We have some folks who actually manufacture OT equipment using us. And, you know, their initial comments using their product were like, wow, even our own tools don't fingerprint our own hardware as well as you guys fingerprint it. Um, so that kind of gives you an <laughs> idea of like just how much data we're seeing and how many fingerprints we can add. So we're just constantly cranking out fingerprints for everything we possibly can. And we use a combination of like actively working with customers and kind of what we call like safaris. Someone will call us up at a hospital and say, we want to identify all this random equipment in this like surgery center. And we work with the customer and walk through all those devices to identify what all of them are. We add the fingerprints, we ship them out to everybody else. In other cases where we're saying, well, what are the top things that we see across our entire customer base that are not being fingerprinted correctly today or that we can do a better job with? And we just drill into those, whether that's doing protocol research or whether that means just going through and really digging into stuff and then reaching out to customers saying, what is that thing? Mm. It, it wasn't so long ago that uh, I know you were looking around for an ICS OT test environment, right? And I'd imagine the 
you know, the reason you were seeking a test environment is to make sure that when you started scanning these things, you weren't going to, uh, you know, uh, cause them to malfunction, right? Which in a, in a you know, say a manufacturing plant uh, would be a pretty big deal. In the end, though, it sounds like that wasn't much of an issue. It was interesting. Like even some of the OT vendors don't really have OT test environments. Everything's production, basically. A lot of the equipment is so expensive that vendors don't have extra copies lying around. So we ended up working mm-hmm. with customers in the OT spaces, whether it's like medical or ICS or energy transmission, et cetera, and worked with them directly to build the stuff out with real equipment, even when it's in development mode or in production mode. Um, one of the <laughs> fun wins we had recently was looking into these uh, Landtronics export controllers. Export's basically like a really small controller with an Ethernet port on it. That's basically a serial Ethernet adapter that you attach to some other product. So a lot of uh, internet-enabled products and network-enabled products don't actually have their own networking stack. They instead have this Landtronics export embedded into the device itself. But those devices are super fragile. Even if you just connect to the port and don't send any data on it, you can crash the device. So it's one of those things where even looking at that thing funny, you can knock it over. So we spent a ton of effort figuring out how to fingerprint those things prior to even connecting to the port in the first place so we can basically skip them automatically based on that fingerprint. So we do a lot of stuff to make sure that even in networks full of really, really fragile devices like these Landtronics exports, we can still safely scan them. See, this is this is why I asked, right? Because I know that, you know, the safety thing was a concern and it sounds like, well, you know, now you're rolling into all of these OT environments, so you obviously sorted it out. But then you just said something really weird, which you know I'm going to ask you about, which is you fingerprint these things without connecting to them. And I'm like, okay, how? How, do, how does that work? <laughs> like, what? Are, what, are you, what? Oh, the great thing is so many of these vendors have their own custom discovery protocols. And as long as you run that type of custom discovery prior to doing the rest of your discovery, it works out great. So we've got kind of a stage scanner where the early stages are the stuff that's absolutely safe to do no matter what. And as we get further and further down that chain, we start disqualifying different discovery methods. Um, the exports also have a problem where certain SNP queries will crash them too. So you can't even do an SNP public query to get their information, even if they have an SNP enabled, because certain types of SNP queries will knock the device over and they start reloading immediately. Um, yeah, so, so, so the question again, HD, is how, how are you then profiling these things if, okay, you can't do an SNP query and you can't connect to them? You mentioned some sort of discovery protocol. What does that look like if there's no connection? Uh, there's some funky stuff out there. So we do a combination of like, you know, using ICMP pings with really boring options and then do some stack fingerprinting on that to then queue things up for secondary yeah. follow-up. But we also do things like the Landtronics discovery protocol directly. So that's just UDP port. You throw a packet at, comes back with some response. And from there, you get the model number and figure out where you want to do with it. So Landtronics Okay, so that's actually, like, they, they, have their own, they have their own like UDP-based uh, thing that'll just shit out a packet when you touch it. And so many vendors have that, like everything from your brother printer to your scanners to almost every dude out on the network has some sort of discovery protocol. It's only the newer consumer electronics use things like MDNS or WSD. Um, Nearly everything else has some kind of custom manufacturer protocol, whether it's layer two and more often layer three. Uh, We recently added support for the new Ubiquiti version two protocol. And so all of our Ubiquiti device discovery is now way better because we can do the new uh, speak the new protocol as well as the old one. So, I mean, at this point, you're pretty confident you could go into, say, a, uh, uh, you know, say an OT environment with a lot of robots swinging around, you know, doing sketchy stuff where if they malfunction, they could kill people or whatever. So you're pretty confident at this point you could let Rumble run around in an environment like that and you're not going to kill anyone? Uh, probably. I mean, you want to start off running a scam like maybe <laughs> off hours, but at the same time, like we don't want to guarantee yeah, it's not going to cause anything. <laughs> I mean, the biggest challenge you run into is actually not the OT equipment. It's all the security software and security hardware people have installed in the environment. So we run into cases where like everything about the network is rock solid and fine, except for the under-provisioned firewall between you and the devices that falls over when you scan through it. So our biggest challenges mm-hmm. have been the security devices between us and the devices that we scan, not the actual devices themselves. 
So, so it's out of hours scans just in case, but you're pretty confident that it's, uh, that it's okay. Yeah. We typically do like a, an out of hour scan window or maintenance window first for a customer. And once they feel confident, they move to, you know, scan continuously or uh, background scanning. Um, but, uh, there's definitely a few cases that pop up here and there. And when we find one, we dig into it and figure out how to make sure it doesn't happen. Now, uh, network operators also have been uh, showing an interest in Rumble. What are they using it for? Because I understand some of those some of those are some pretty big ticket deals. Um, what are they What are they doing with Rumble? Are they trying to get a sense of what customers are connecting, or is it more that they're just looking at their internal assets? Yeah, it's a it's a mix, right? We've got um, really large telecoms using us for all sorts of things, and that's a combination of looking at like their uh, telecom equipment, but also like their hosted services, their uh, internal services that they used to provide uh, stuff to their internal teams. Um, so it's a little bit of everything. Like folks want to know what's out there. They want to know it's connected. They want to know what they don't know about. Um, and some for some of our like large co-location providers, they want to see not only their own stuff, but also what their customers are exposing. Because at the end of the day, like if a customer gets hacked, it affects them too. It means they've got some rogue element on the network doing sketchy things. And they want to know whether a customer is actually at risk of getting hacked or has exposure in that sense. So for a lot of our uh, co-location and telecom customers, they actually care about their customer security as well as their own security because at the end of the day, it falls back on them. Now, look, you know, it's something we've spoken about a few times, which is this um, these cloud integrations. Uh, you've been extending them. What are people using them for, right? Because is it just the case that it's like, okay, you know, you've got 52 EC2 instances. They're running this uh, operating system. They have this software. Uh, I mean, are you limited by what you can kind of enumerate through the cloud provider APIs in that case? Or are you, are you then sort of extending um, somehow beyond what the API can can do? Like how, how are you actually bringing that piece all together and, and what are people doing with it? Sure, absolutely. Um, so there's lots of fun things we can do with the API side. Like the APIs are pretty good in terms of uh, providing us lots of information from like the disk image that we can infer the OS from, uh, external IP addresses, IPv6 connectivity, all kinds of fun things like that that are otherwise kind of annoying to dig out of the UIs for uh, these, these cloud consoles. Um, one of the things that we work somewhat surprising is that a lot of folks tend to know what's in their primary cloud accounts. They know what's in their, their main hosted SaaS or their DMZ or things like that. What they generally don't know about are all those other sub-accounts out there. So as we're seeing more customers moving to multi-subscriptions, uh, multi-account, AWS organizations, things like that, what they really care about is identifying all those sub-organizations as they're being created and populating that. So it's not that they don't know what their, their main hosting is, it's just they don't know what the, all those other sub-teams are doing. And so having the well, ability... I mean, that's a, that's, that's a story as old as time, which is the marketing department spins up some microsite for an event and then they forget about it. And five years later, it gets owned with a three-year-old bug, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we kind of moved towards not just doing your instances and things like that, but we added support for enumerating all your databases, enumerating your lambdas, uh, kind of those other exposed assets that are out there. And it really is those secondary accounts that people are more concerned about. Yeah, so this is all achievable through these APIs? Yeah, the APIs aren't too bad, and you actually get a lot of really interesting data from the API that you can do cool things with. An example that's not necessarily cloud, but with VMware, for example. Like when you pull the VMware API for an asset, it actually provides a lot of information about what's running on that asset, even though it's not super visible inside the VMware UI. So for example, we can tell you like what version of Defender is installed in each of your Windows systems just by pulling it out of the process list from the Open Tools API in the VMware response. So you can do some really neat fingerprinting um, through these different uh, virtualization APIs, whether it's cloud or VMware, um, that just really are not obvious if you're trying to use the normal tools for it. Well, I mean, in the case of VMware, you just use the latest critical CVE, right? You can pull whatever <laughs> information you want. <laughs> Remote administration is a service, right? Yeah, that's it. That's it. They're having a rough run. They are absolutely having a rough run. So uh, one of the notes that I got here 
you know, before we do this, you know, we, we throw together some notes and whatever. One of the notes I got here is, uh, you know, something for us to talk about is uh, interesting trends in research, trends in buyers, and who is needing you more these days. And, you know, I, of course, it's a Dorothy Dixer, but it's still interesting, right? So, so you know, have you noticed a change? First of all, have you noticed a change in buyer trends? Because, yeah, I mean, I, I just... I feel like your buyer trends are just going to go where the awareness goes, if that makes sense, because it's kind of useful to everyone. So you're just going to see more uptake among people who know about it. Um, but you tell me, like, is there where where are the pockets of interest right now? Sure. Um, you know, early on, we really focused on customers that had lots of physical things, like whether it's a hospital or somebody else, a lot of on-prem stuff, someone with a lot of physical stores. That's kind of where we felt like the most obvious demand was. Um, but of course, with the pandemic, with more work from home stuff, we've seen a huge shift off network assets. And we've still seen pretty strong demand, even from customers that are primary cloud and primary remote only. They still um, need to know what they have out there. They still want to know which of my assets are missing, which EDR, uh, what's connected to what. Um, okay, what devices are on this cloud, but which ones are actually reachable using the combination of scanning it and enumerating it uh, to figure out what's actually exposed and what's not. Um, so surprisingly enough, we're seeing a larger trend towards the off network and the you know work uh, remote work stuff. Yeah, and I mean, early days with Rumble, I mean, the cloud stuff wasn't really a big consideration, right? Like that kind of came later. That's right. I mean, early on, we had some cloud support, but it wasn't really the focus. It was more of like, okay, well, we're already there. We might as well enumerate this stuff. Now it's turning into something that's really driving the rest of the discovery process. Folks are starting off with the cloud discovery and then following that with scanning of the external exposed interfaces of their cloud services versus going the other direction and doing scanning and then identifying your cloud assets from there. Now, one nice thing for you is that this is operated as a cloud service, right? So you, uh, and I understand you can do on-prem, right, for the, um, you know, for the handful of organizations that actually require that, and there are some. Uh, but by and large, you know, most of the time when a customer scans their environment, that data goes to you. And uh, I know you, and I know you would not be able to help yourself but uh, to, to crunch it and uh, look for interesting stuff. I'm guessing by now you've got enough data available that you can draw some, uh, you know, interesting insight from it. Like, what have you found? Like, what's been the thing that you've been able to learn from this scan data that surprised you? I guess would be my first question on that. Um, these days, we've got pretty good base coverage. So, going to any brand new organization, we typically can identify eighty percent of the hardware that's not like a commodity PC. Um, so, it's a pretty good base to start with, and then all the other stuff is where we try to increase our coverage and, and get better at going forward. Um, the things that we find surprising are, you know, during the holiday season, everyone buys whatever the new network doodads are. And of course, the next month we see them all show up across all of our, you know, free users, right? So uh, we tend to get pretty early warning about some new trend of, you know, home robotics, vacuum cleaners, smart light bulbs, um, echoes, Amazon assistants, yeah. smart Is TVs. It, does, it work, does it work for uh, like gift ideas, right? You see everyone's buying something <laughs> and you're like, oh, that looks cool. I, I, you know, I'll get one of them. But for real, there's definitely devices that I bought because I've seen, hey, these things are popular. I'm going to go look into it and I need one to scan anyway. <laughs> so I might as well buy, pick one up. So there you go. The biggest, the biggest insight that you've drawn so far is like uh, cool new devices that you should, uh, that you think, yeah, I could use one of them. <laughs> I mean, we do see a lot of other trends too. Like, so you know, DevOps trends, for example, we see a lot more folks using, you know, K3S or other kind of containerization stuff in smaller environments. Um, we saw a lot of folks deploying, you know, tools like Grafana, uh, you know, self-hosted GitLab, things like that. So it's really interesting to kind of be able to keep an eye on all these kind of developer trends and, and tooling trends out there as well. Um, and the trend really is going towards having more stuff exposed to the network all the time. 
Yeah, I mean, have you thought about? Hey, look, and I know you're ridiculously busy, but have you thought about spinning some of this out into into like a blog post, right? Because there would be some really interesting macro trends you could get. I mean, you're limited by only capturing data from the type of company that's going to buy uh, your product, but it, you know, still, as I say, you got a lot of you got a lot of you got insight into a lot of devices now, so there would be something meaningful there. Yeah, absolutely. We're doing some baseline tracking right now to start getting those stats together and figure out what they look like. You know, obviously we've got a lot of large manufacturers using us and those manufacturers build networking products. So at the same time, we don't want to like overrepresent one of our customers in a data set because they happen to be, hmm. you know, the manufacturer of said product line. So we have to be really careful about how we classify data and how we uh, qualify what is representative, what isn't. So we've got um, some fun guidelines working through now. Like, okay, we want to see that device across three unique customers that have no relation to each other. We want to see it over this period of time. So we're kind of working through all those challenges right now to make sure that when we do present stats, we're not over overly representing a single customer or a manufacturer as a result. How do you not wind up in a situation where a new device appears and it's just a total head scratcher and you can't figure it out? Like, surely that happens sometimes. <laughs> we found some bizarre stuff. I mean, probably my favorite one so far was a drone defense system. Uh, we literally found this device. We're like, we have no idea what this thing is, but let's go look into it. And so it's a uh, you know meshed network of devices that create a perimeter around this large facility. And if a drone comes anywhere near it, they all start you know chirping and alerting and taking pictures of it and and all kinds of things like that. So it's it's a type of product I didn't even realize existed. So we started digging into the fingerprint data. So that's like around a prison or something like that, I'd imagine. <laughs> it was a little more mundane than a prison, but it's still important stuff. Is there anything that you just couldn't figure out? Just flat out, you're like, it has this Mac, it has this IP, I've got no idea what it is. I imagine the advantage is you can ring your customer and say, hey, can you, you know, what is this thing? But have you ever had just a complete mystery device? Uh, the worst ones for us are when we find like a root shell. Literally, there's a device with only one port open and it's a command shell and it's root. And we're like, um, that really shouldn't be there. <laughs> you really don't want to have a root shell hanging on the internet, especially when it's public facing. But what the heck is it? Uh, probably the one that drove me crazy was I found this root shell on a random device during a security engagement when I was testing out Rumble in the early days. And it's, it was called, called Patriot something or other. And we're like, what the heck is this Patriot something? Ends up it was the FPGA inside of a Cisco router running on an emulated ARM core that some service tech had left in debug mode that just happens to leave this root shell on a high port. And it took like six months of chasing down. The customer had no idea who it was. The operator didn't know who it was. Cisco didn't know who, what, what the heck it was. Like it took so long just to finally figure it out. And they finally said, yeah, we don't know. We, we think it was a leftover of a diagnostic session that someone just forgot about. I was like, okay, but how do we make sure there's not another root shell in the future? Like, yeah, we, we have no details. <laughs> so that one, we have no idea. Yeah. There's things like that. I mean, it's just amazing how much <laughs> stuff is out there. That's just bizarre, especially just command shells and admin ports on, on bizarro ports or um, uh, yeah, so much networking equipment with weird emulated arm backdoors all over the place. On that note, I reckon we can wrap it up. HD, uh, thanks so much for, for joining us to update us on what's going on with Rumble. Everybody needs to go and check out rumble.run. HD Moore, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Patrick. Pleasure to be here. That was HD Moore, co-founder of Rumble Network Discovery there, and you can check them out at rumble.run. And that is it for this edition of The Soapbox. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back in a couple of days with another episode of the weekly Risky Business Podcast. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.